everyone to another insightful episode of the Counter Narrative Podcast, where we challenge perspective and amplify voices to foster a more inclusive society. I am Rihanna Ojoob, and I'm here with the incredible, amazing Tiara Lua Fadi. Hi, Rihanna. Hi, everyone. We have a special guest joining us today, someone whose work has significantly impacted the lives of many people, and she continues to inspire hope across Nigeria. Today, we are honored to have on the show Titi Lola Vivo Adeni with us, also known as the Merchant of Hope. Titi Lola has spent over 15 years in public service, serving in various capacities with the Lagos State Government. Her work has been instrumental in providing a coordinated and proactive response to sexual and gender-based violence in Lagos State. Titi Lola is the Pioneer Executive Secretary of the Lagos State Domestic and Sexual Violence Agency and author of several children's books on domestic violence. And she's the founder of the Lola Bible Adini Foundation. Without further ado, let's dive right into the conversation with you, Titi Lola. Hi, Titi Lola. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. We're, so, we're, we're glad to have you here. So we, we know that you had your secondary school in France and then you had your sharing institution or uh, education in England but then you came back yeah. to Nigeria you came back to Nigeria to, yeah. join, to join the civil service and it begs the question like okay what's going on why did you do that like and I know that you would have gotten offers from different establishment top law firms and all of that why did you come back to Nigeria to be a civil servant okay um so uh, again thank you again for having me so I did primary school in Nigeria and then yes we all went to um, France I did high school there and then England and then I was about to do my master's in law I'm a lawyer by profession and then it was my dad my dad was my dad was of the opinion that I need to come back it, it appeared that I didn't have I didn't have like roots so to speak because obviously I had friends in France I had friends in England but I didn't really have a base home so he was of the opinion that you know what defer your master's um, admission and then come back do NYSC and then you can always go back to to wherever it is you wanted to go to so it, it was actually my dad <laughs> so I came back came back to um, Lagos did NYSC um, at that time I hadn't gone to law school right so um i didn't really have a lot of options in terms of securing placement in a law firm right because i hadn't gone to law school so i had opportunities to work in the oil and gas sector um i had opportunities to work in a private law firm i think maybe because the managing partner just liked me for some reason i don't know but then as god will have it um nyc refused to post me to those places and then oh. they posted me to lagos state ministry of justice and at that time, I just felt, you know what, let me just get right into it. Because I had, we finished, we came out of camp in November. And I didn't get posted to the Ministry of Justice until December. And, you know, we were very, I was quite skeptical about the delay it was taking. Because I had heard that if you don't settle in quickly, you know, they may extend your, your service year and all of that. So I just took, I just agreed to, you know, serve in the Lagos State Ministry of Justice. And... I never left. I've never. I've not left since then. That's 2007. <laughs> I would like for you to tell us a bit about your activism. Have you always felt like a calling to be a public servant, working to serve and empower the vulnerable in the society? Um. So, I I, I always say that I may not know where I'm going. Um. Or I may not know exactly what I want but I definitely know what I don't want, right? And I do know that um, my life, my, my childhood, you know, my upbringing, you know, my parents raised us to, to be people of empathy, to be people of um, courage, to be people that use their voice and their platform in whatever capacity to assist um, anybody in their community. So, um, and perhaps maybe my background, you know, law, law, um, the legal background, the legal profession empowers you to use your voice. And it also, um, I think part of our training is that it inculcates in us the desire to resist oppression, right? And so if there are issues that 
people other people may be comfortable with i think we are wired to resist the status quo so i think a combination of my upbringing my background um my um profession and then my public service you know at the moment has sort of culminated into this effect of me seeing public service as the only place for now for me to be able to make the desired change that I want. So I've not always been in this sexual and gender-based violence space, right? So when I served in 2007, I, I, I was privileged to work with um, the then special assistant to the Honorable Attorney General and then the Honorable Attorney General himself in service year. And then when I went to law school, came back, I stayed on in the office of the Attorney General. So I had the privilege of working on different things, different policy issues, looking at forceful ejection, um, um, forceful evictions, looking at scholarship board, looking at laws that needed to be amended, looking at laws that needed to be, form, um, policies that needed to be formulated in different, different areas of um, development. So we're looking at maternity policy, the whole works. And so I just, I've always had that fulfillment, right, in working in the public service. And obviously it's not really about the money because I mean, when I started, I was earning 30,000, right? Um, so, I, and I remember a friend calling me and saying, Lola, with your degree, you can work it anywhere. Why are you in that place? <laughs> and I said, no, this is where I'm finding fulfillment. This is where I feel I ought to be at this moment, right? And obviously, I'm, I was blessed to have amazing bosses who allowed me to flourish and, you know, encourage me in whatever it is I wanted to do in that space, you know? So... I think to answer your question directly, I would say that uh, perhaps it's divine. Um, perhaps it's just literally what I was born to do. I honestly believe that I was born to serve. I believe it. So in what particular capacity? Now I'm doing SGBV work, but who knows what tomorrow may hold. But I believe that, you know, working in government, um, working in the public sector allows you the opportunity to contribute in one way or the other to development i i i personally i don't have that luxury of complaining criticizing you know from the outside it's okay we need people to put pressure on us us in the system but i feel that one of the ways you can actually add value is actually by serving people so i, I i'm it's such a privilege to serve the people of Lagos state in my personal in my um instant capacity that really it's like oh yes and it's and, really and okay. it's showing like it's actually showing exactly. you can see the, you can see the uh, fruits of the fact that you were born to serve it's it's really wonderful and in our own capacity as well we're serving we amplify voices we we have this conversation on media spaces yes. to shed light to the fact that see this thing this going on gender-based now. violence is real because when it comes to gdv people tend to downplay it and say oh what's there you know and you know it's one of the ups and downs in partnership and we're like no ups and downs yes but zero violence so in our own way we are also putting in the work and contributing in our own little way in our own little spaces as well so thank you for the work that you do thank you so much for using your platform so you've been with the Lagos DSBA since 2014 when it was a response team and you were the coordinator of the team then and then yes. you've you are the pioneer yes. executive secretary at the moment yes so we want to get into the numbers what are the key achievements of the agency what is statistics of reported cases and convictions also we want to know about the male to female ratio because we know that male victims of abuse so we want to know the ratio and then we want to know how you've been able what you've been able to do like your work in all of this wow that's a loaded question <laughs> um so i think the the essence of the response team which has now metamorphosed into an agency is basically to coordinate response because before we came on the scene these different institutions they were there the police the health sector the judiciary and social services you know they were all there but we noticed um that there was no coordinating body and these institutions were literally working in silos and we know that if we don't if there was no coordination it's the victims and the survivors that would um will suffer for it 
right? If there's no proper referral pathway that is activated when cases are reported, then chances are the survivors will not be able to access holistic support. So we started off as a response team. I, I was privileged to be appointed as the coordinator. So my job was really to coordinate response. Um, propose and formulate policies because this was literally we started from the scratch there was no template for it um there was no sister state we could go to and learn right it, it didn't exist at that time in nigeria so we, we we started from the scratch and it's so amazing to see what we've been able to do in terms of um building a system um, an institution that has now metamorphosed into a full-fledged statutory agency. The first of its kind. We are still the only ones in Nigeria that has an agency devoted to sexual and gender-based violence. And I mean, for me, that's just a testament of what you can achieve when there's political will. You know, some people ask, oh, what's your secret in Lagos? Why is it that Lagos seems to, you know, seems to be towing the right path? And then I always say it's political will. You know, I've seen how it's not enough to have passion. Neither is it enough for you to be knowledgeable about an issue. If there's no political will, you know, to address these issues, to mainstream these issues into the different sectors, then chances are it will just end as passion and it will just end as mere activism. So um, what we do at the agency, it's our statutory mandate to respond to cases. It's part of our statutory mandate to ensure survivors are able to access holistic support and services. And these services, I'm referring to medical. If a person has been sexually abused, they must receive medical attention within the golden hour period of 72 hours. Um, and then let's not forget that a lot of our survivors are indigent. So they don't necessarily have the finances to even access medical attention post-trauma. And so we have to develop policies that mainstream response to SGBV into the health sector. And so what we have now is the Sexual and Gender-Based Violence Intervention Trust Fund, which basically provides free medical attention to survivors um, that present within seven days post-trauma. Um, in terms of legal support, we're dealing with crimes, right? Crimes are committed against the state. Survivors need access to justice because that's one of the ways that they take their power back and they're able to maintain control of their lives. And so we work very, very closely with the police, um, knowing fully well that, you know, um, the police plays a crucial role in ensuring that survivors are able to believe the system and stay on in the criminal justice process. You know, if, if the first your first part of call is discouraging, chances are you say, you know what, I've left mm -hmm. it to God. God is the ultimate judge. God will judge that person. But if you engage um, a police officer who is trained, who is professional, who deploys empathy, who knows what to do, how to refer, chances are you would have a bit more confidence in the system and you'll be willing to stay through the long haul. So um, we work very closely with the police. Over the years, we've been able to establish designated police stations referred to as family support units. Currently, we have 22 across the state. And these stations have trained personnel that um, once you report, you don't have, once you get to any of these divisions and you report at the counter that you want to report a case of domestic violence, for instance, you are sent immediately to the family support unit. In other divisions, you go from the counter to the station officer, from the station officer to the CRO, from the CRO to the DCB, from the DCB to the DPO, and you are repeating, repeating, you keep repeating the case, which is actually, you are with, with traumatizing victims and survivors. So what the family support unit does is basically ensures that you meet, you go to one person or one office, you tell your story, you document and then the referral pathway is activated so it's the police that then refers you to other places where you need to go to to access help so that's one of the um that's one um intervention that we're very proud of working with the police it's not i'm not saying that the police the fsu is the family support units are perfect no 
I don't think there's any institution that can boast of perfection. But definitely, um, we can say that because of that symbiotic relationship with them, we expect that survivors are able to access um, quality services when they approach those um, designated police stations. Um, another um, area that we've been able to um, propose interventions in is in the education sector. So we know, we know, we know that um, nobody is born an abuser, right? There's nobody that comes in as an abuser. And we also know that the, 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 the education sector plays a huge role in shaping mindsets. And the, the truth is, we are at war with mindsets. We are at war with cultural norms and um, values that have been inculcated in people from generations to generations. We didn't just, we didn't just appear, the rape culture didn't just begin today, right? It's something that has been, you know, has been um, shaped in our mindsets, perhaps because of our socialization, the way we were brought up, the words we heard, what we saw, you know. So it's going to take a while for us to reorientate our mindsets. And what of, one, one of the powerful ways of doing that is education and literally catching them young. So what we do in partnership with um, the Ministry of Education, Office of Education Quality Assurance, is to, we have now designed a curriculum for boys and a curriculum for girls, where we teach boys on promoting positive masculinity. We teach girls on femininity. We teach them on um, grit, tenacity, resilience. We talk to them about sexual and gender-based violence. We talk to them about SRHR. We talk to them about transitioning from boys to men. And just basically gender equality and equity, gender parity. The fact that this is a girl does not mean she's um, she's inferior to you, you know. Use your masculinity for something positive. Use your strength for something positive. And, you know, we started with just 40 boys in 2018. And now we have over, I think, 3,000 boys in the clubs across um, the state. Um, I think we're in, I think, roughly... 100 schools in the state um, and the same the same ratio for girls as well so we're very proud about that and um, we're also proud about how the schools the education system itself is now you know um, has now embraced sexual and gender-based violence and the need to ensure that children are appropriately sensitized and informed about these issues and you know um, we have in Lagos State the Safeguarding and Child Protection Policy, which basically mandates all child-centered institutions to have safeguarding and child protection policies in place. Not just government schools, but even private schools. And you know, when we go for monitoring, we actually have a monitoring exercise going on now. When we go on the field, we see um, the fact that these schools have started to embrace this policy. And it is it is quite commendable because it means that um, there's ownership. It's not just DSVA telling the schools what to do. The schools have now are now getting to the point where they know that this is right and they understand and appreciate the role they play in ensuring that their children are safe and child protection concerns can be made and treated um, with utmost confidentiality. Um, I think another um, element that we, we are very big on is ensuring that perpetrators are held accountable. Um, personally, I believe that one of the greatest deterrents to um, sexual violence and even other forms of gender-based violence is securing convictions, right? Um, when people see that if you do the crime, you will do the time. If people see that there is no fear of favor, there is nobody that is um, that the, 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 the hand of the law will not you know, the, the law will not be unleashed on such person. Everybody is equal before the law. It starts to reorientate your mindset that, okay, this is no longer business as usual. It's no longer, oh, sorry, I won't do it again, begging and going scot-free. When people see that perpetrators are being held accountable, we know that that's one of the ways we can um, reduce the menace to the barest minimum. Because these issues thrive in the culture of impunity when people think that they can do it and get away with it. But what, what convictions does, what um, restraining others in domestic violence does is basically um, lets people know that there are consequences for bad behavior and that people can be held accountable. 
Um, so this between last year and this year, Lagos State Government has been able to secure over, I believe, a hundred and over hundred convictions, um, ranging from life imprisonment to 60 years to 25 years, depending on the evidence, obviously, that is adduced before the court. Um, although recently we've been seeing a lot more of um, life imprisonment convictions, and I think it's deliberate on the part of the judiciary to send that message that, you know, these issues will no longer be treated with kids' gloves and that um, people that commit these offences will be held accountable. Um, I think finally I've been speaking a lot. I think uh, on this point, I think one issue that we're, one um, intervention that we're very proud of is, we're proud, you know, is, is the fact that we're seeing increase in reporting, increase in formal and informal reporting of cases. When we started, we, we record, I think when we started in 2014, in November 2014, I think we handled perhaps 40 cases thereabout. But now, as at um, March this year, we started to handle an average of 250 cases monthly, new cases. And um, we know of a truth that we've not even scratched the surface because these issues continue to remain one of the most um, underreported crimes, not just in Lagos, Nigeria, but I mean, around the world. There's a statistic that says that for every one person that reports, six go unreported. So the fact that people have confidence in the system, the fact that people believe us enough that and trust us enough to share some intimate, intimate stories with us, you know, it's, it's very encouraging and I think that's one of the reasons why we keep pressing forward, knowing that, you know, we have become sort of a voice for the voiceless. You, you asked about, okay. Yes, so um, last year, this year, we did 93, 93% 90, of our clients were female and 7% were male. And it, there's a slight increase from the year before um, when it was, I think, 4% um, male 96 percent female so last year and between september 2022 to august 2023 we're able to provide services to um roughly 5333 that's, that's um, an incredible start that's an incredible start to like for what you're doing it's wonderful and we're so glad to be to be amplifying this to the world and to people in nigeria in general so well done that was that was so robust and you know you were, when, when you were speaking you said thank you i like the part where you mentioned lagos state being in the front line of trying to end gender-based violence and when you in conversations when we talk about these things you hear people say where did it happen is it lagos ah my worry like there's this confidence when you're talking about a woman who has been abused yes. or anybody going through some sort of harassment the first i, I hear the little did it happen in Lagos? Don't of course, I said to you, but like, ah, oh, don't worry. They are very, they are very quick to help victims you know, and show up for victims. There was even a tweet recently where somebody was talking about, ah, if you want to do uh, gender-based violence, if you want to do something, if you want to hurt women, don't do it in Lagos. Don't. Because you're going to, I, it was a tweet. The person deleted it later. It was like, oh, don't do it in Lagos. So they're very serious in this place. And it was, it was real, like, fine. It was, it was annoying because they're saying that, but that accountability states, in yes. Lagos State, and then, but then it was really inspiring that oh yeah, they're saying that this, this, you're doing something, and they can see the work. So well done, you, you're doing a lot of work, and you know this brings me to my next question. In your conversation, you said perpetrators. One of the goal of the agency is to ensure that perpetrators are being held accountable. Now I want to ask this question: When it comes to religion. Yes. Religion and perpetrators. You know, a victim has come forward to say that, oh, this has happened. I want to do this. I need help of the government. And then the victim comes back and says, oh, thank you. I want to take it to God. How do perpetrators get, how do, how do they account for the crimes? Because the government, the agency has heard about it. How do you deal with cases like that? Yes. Um, so, um, okay, before I answer that question, let me just share a, a story. So this this happened when we just came on the scene. Um, I had just returned from maternity leave. I'm saying that because the person that came into the office around 8.30 a.m., I can never forget. 
this lady had a seven-day-old baby and her left eye it, it appeared like her eye was about to fall off like i don't know the eye socket had come off and so she came in and i saw her holding the seven-day-old baby so i'm just coming back from maternity leave so i appreciate the, the condition and her state of mind right and then she goes oh they just got back they were discharged from the hospital and then the husband said she should go and cook and she was like ah, i just got back i'm tired and then he now proceeded to dismantling the baby walker and use the bottom part of the baby walker to hit her and that was in the process it hit her face and then it affected her eye so of course we were livid you know we got up and you know this was a learning period for us me in particular because you know you cannot assume that you know what the survivor wants right you it's you there's there is a a a, a principle referred to as client self-determination so we got up we immediately took her to the um the staff clinic we made sure she was able to access medical attention and then i called the then dpo of festac who is now he's now a deputy commissioner of police and he's a, an amazing dcp monday agonica amazing police officer he was like no 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 send her send her send her so we referred her he a dpo got up and went to effect arrest that's to tell you the gravity of the violence that he saw and the way he was moved to respond long and short of the story the dpo arrested the man arrested the family members that were begging because they were begging i think her, her pastor was amongst those people because he wanted to send the message that you can't do this kind of thing and come and beg no she'll cool off a bit in the in the cell and then i'll release you at the end of the day hoping that you know that would give the woman confidence in the system my sisters you know this woman came the next day in company of her mom and so i was like oh welcome hope you're feeling better don't worry we're going to court we'll get a restraining order i was you know thinking that i was doing my work and then i noticed that she started she would now attempted to start kneeling like you know she was going down her and her mom so i was like ah, what's happening then i go ah madam we thank you hmm. we thank you but you see eh, our pastor has spoken to us and he has said that this thing is the work of the devil so at this moment wow. let's just allow sleeping dogs to lie you know the man has learned the man has learned that lesson he will never so i was like ah, do you think i'm sitting here warming this chair like why are you the next thing she said shocked me she said madam forget i wow. came here forget <laughs> She said, forget I came here. In fact, remove me from your people's register. Forget I came here. And you know, for me, obviously I was upset, but then I realized that, you know, what was justice for her is not necessarily the traditional justice, which is court jail. Justice for her at that point in time was her letting him sign an undertaking to stay away from her and her two children, right? and then provide maintenance for her the maintenance i.e you know um support feeding and all of that and then i realized that this pastor as with all other religious clerics play a huge role in either encouraging people encouraging victims and survivors to report cases or encouraging them to remain in abusive relationships i'm zeroing in now on domestic violence and so this helped us to now start keeping data of people who had reported to their clerics before coming to the team the response team then and then we were two three years down the line we then mined that data and it revealed that at least at least 65% of people that present at our agency or response team then had previously gone to their religious cleric to report. And so the religious cleric had deployed ADR, deployed um, the Bible, the Quran. This is what the Bible and Quran says, right? And then tried to persuade them 
in remaining in the relationship. And so what that did for us was then to develop um, an intervention for religious institutions. We're not saying that we're coming to take over the role of the church or the mosque, but we need to let this we let religious clerics know that we're dealing with crimes, crimes are committed against the state, and that handling domestic violence requires a skill. It's not, you, you, you can't just open the Bible and say, God hates divorce. God says, Madam, submit. There's a place for that. There's a place for religious counseling. But there's also a place for psychology, providing psychosocial support, understanding how people are wired, their socialization, their upbringing, temperament. Um, that informs decisions and that helps parties who are still interested in the relationship to debrief, to receive therapy, perhaps it's anger management, perhaps part of the therapy is being separated for an undisclosed period of time so that they work on each other separate and then if they're able to work on their issues, they come back together or they take a decision and say, you know what, we're going to proceed to judicial suppression or divorce. The church or the mosque does not um, allow victims and survivors that option. And so we developed this um, program. And then since 2018, we've been training religious clerics on these issues, understanding what sexual and gender. Based. Some don't even understand it. That you hear things like God hates divorce. And I always ask, okay, mm -hmm. does God love wickedness? Does God love injustice? Does God love violence? How is it that your prayer life is solely about God, please let this man not beat me. God, please let me not die. How is that your definition of Christianity or Islam? I believe that God is a God of love and he's a just God, right? And I truly believe that our lives are too small to be the reason for our lives. So the point where you're focused on yourself and you're trying to just stay alive, I don't think that's the intention of God. I, I personally, that's not my, my, my experience with God, right? And so we help the religious clerics understand the need to have interface with government. You can't be mediating. This week, Sunday, you mediate. Next week, you mediate again. Upper week, you mediate. No. There comes a time where you must have interface with government. And so we've tried to establish that referral pathway with the religious clerics. And the beauty is that now we're actually seeing cases being referred to us from religious clerics. That these are parties, these are couples they've been managing. And it appears that <laughs> they need to escalate now because, you know, murder, danger is imminent, you know. And I think it will take time. But I think it's important that we approach these issues not from a critical or condescending manner. Let us realize that they are people of influence and let's see how we can conscript them. This are army against them. Um, this are army of soldiers. So from your thank you for that answer. From your from your response, we know that okay, maybe religious religious um, indoctrination is one of the problems, one of the challenges that the agency faces. Are there other challenges that the agency faces in the work against yes. sexual and gender and gender-based violence? So obviously the rape culture, um, you know, um, rape apologists, people that um, blame the victim or blame the survivor and sort of protect the abuser, where we, we have instances where the spotlight is placed on the victim or the survivor. Oh, why did she to go there? What was she expecting? After the man has paid for lunch, wine and dined that is it Father Christmas? What's what I mean, you know? So we have that issue. And I think um, social media, if you notice, social media sort of it, it helps you realize that we have a long way to go in changing mindset. You know, you see a post, I like to look at comments. Um, and I just look at comments and I see how it's almost like the, well, the male, the, I see male names, so I'm assuming they are men. Although you still have some females that make such that type such um, comments, and you hear things like, "Hey, but she too, what was she expecting? This story is not complete. This story doesn't make sense." And I always say, "GBV 
stories cannot make sense. In fact, if they make sense, if they make sense, it's not real. How, is, how does it make sense for a father to be sexually attracted to his two-year-old daughter? It's not supposed to make sense. It, it is because it doesn't make sense. That is why it's a problem, right? And they are trying to rationalize. They are trying to understand the, the, how it happened, you know? And they start to give excuses for bad behavior. And then I say to myself, imagine a survivor is looking at these messages. The survivor will say, wow, if I even come out and I speak my truth, this is what people are going to say about me. So you know what? Let me just keep on suffering in silence. So we have a huge rape culture. We have a divide. That's not to say that there's no, that a, a part of society is not um, empathetic and doesn't believe survivors. We do have people that believe survivors, encourage survivors to, you know, break the culture of silence, speak up and speak out. But I think we need more of those people that use their platforms to encourage um, survivors speaking up and ensuring that perpetrators are held accountable. You know, we need to move from Ada was raped to Ada raped Ada. We put the spotlight on the perpetrator and that perpetrator knows there's no hiding place. And I think that's one of the, um, that's one of the, es- the essence of the Sex Offenders Register where you publish details of sex convicts. So we know, we put a name a face to the name and we know this person he previously resided in Koshofe he's been sentenced to life imprisonment and all of that so I think that's one of the ways we can achieve that then I think another challenge we face obviously is from the survivors themselves I mean that scenario I, I, I told you real case scenario not African magic how can you help somebody who doesn't want to be helped right although the law allows us to actually when it comes to domestic violence, the law allows us to approach the court for a restraining order. In certain instances, without the consent of the survivor. Because the law also knows that in certain instances, survivors may not want to give consent, right? Because perhaps they are in denial, um, there's fear of the unknown, for whatever reason. Um, the law allows government, it allows NGOs, it allows um, certain institutions to approach the court and obtain a restraining order without the um, consent of the survivor. But even at that, you don't want a situation where you are sort of re-traumatizing the survivor because she's going to come to the to the court. We had a case years ago where the survivor turned into a hostile witness. And she said, my Lord, these people are just trying to break my marriage. And the, 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 the magistrate looked and she was like, dear reality, what's happening? <laughs> so I think the point that we need to make is in instances like this, we don't focus as domestic violence now. We don't focus on criminal justice, right? We focus on, we're survivor-centered, we focus on how do we get the survivor to the point where he or she takes a decision for themselves? So they won't say, oh, is this woman that told me to leave my husband? Or is that man that told me to remain in the marriage? And one of the ways of helping survivors to get to that point is when they are able to access psychosocial support. But the difficulty we are having in that is that the, there's a, you know, there's a myth and there's somewhat of a stigma associated with mental health. You say to somebody, oh, would you like to speak with a clinical psychologist? Psycho? No. I'm not mad. You saying I'm mad. So we've even changed it now. We don't say psychologist. We say to a professional, would you like to speak with a counselor? You know, and they're like, oh, counselor. Yes. You don't pay. You just make yourself available. And so they are able to access at least six sessions for free. All our, all our services are free, but we, we, we encourage them to access at least six, rather to participate in at least six therapeutical sessions. And then at the end of those sessions, they now take a decision. They own it and they run with it. So to answer that, yes, we have situations where um, survivors themselves are um, 
sometimes it appears we're not on the same page but what we well, how we've tried to overcome this is by ensuring that even as we're dealing with the medical and legal um aspect of the case we're also empowering the mind of the survivor so that they are they are mentally ready they are strengthened and they are able to take a decision for themselves thank you for that answer i have a lot to say like i have so much to say and speaking of challenges i can't even get over how one minute you're trying to prosecute the perpetrator and the next you're trying to is the victim the the victim to let let's 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 let the law work and i think until people see domestic violence as a crime we'll keep having this issue honestly because it is so because and like you said earlier you yeah. said 65 percent report to yeah. the cleric before the agency so with that people are there's people not seeing domestic violence as a crime and there's the belief of oh people tend to listen to their uh, pastors and imams it's a family affair and the part where you all said that gm none of this should make sense gender-based violence or any form of violence shouldn't make sense because if you say that oh why did a man rape his child people try to make sense of it like no you can't it doesn't make sense like why are you trying so hard to make sense of the fact that oh because you took me on a date you have to rape me because i didn't consent to sex I would never understand how and why people try to they they actually analyze these things to make sense of it. So it doesn't make sense. It shouldn't make sense. It's it's really a lot of work. And this brings us to my next question. A 2019 mm-hmm. survey by the Nigerian National Bureau of Statistics found that 30% of Nigerian women aged 15 to 49 have experienced physical violence, while 68 have encountered emotional economic or sexual abuse in your experience what factors contribute to these high numbers okay so um i would say patriarchy um patriarchy is one of the factors um, and i think patriarchy is not just the enemy of women i think patriarchy is also the enemy of men because patriarchy would make a man not report because he doesn't want to be mocked right patriarchy will make a man <laughs> okay let me not say that it may be a bit controversial but the idea is that um patriarchy is one of the reasons why gender inequality is entrenched and so that now moves to gender inequality the fact that um people feel that a gender is inferior or superior to the other at the heart of sexual and gender-based violence is gender inequality. And so if we are able to isolate that issue, we've realized that, okay, if we address gender equality and make people see that there should be equality, some people may not be um, comfortable with equality. There's, they, they, you say there should be equity, there should be fairness, you know, if I can do it, I should not be discriminated because of my gender. Neither should I experience violence because of my gender. I should be entitled to equal pay if I'm putting in the work, right? Gender inequality is at the heart of the different forms of sexual and gender-based violence that we see in our country and even in the world, because you know, it's not peculiar to us here again. I think another factor is our um, religious and social cultural factors. Even from the moment when a child is born, you ask, people who ask, oh, what did you have? Oh, I had a girl. Oh, you had a girl. Oh, princess. What did you have? I had a boy. Wow. (laughs) Madam, you are great. Almost like I see it takes a different energy (laughs) to, 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 to birth a boy. And it's from there that it starts. The way we raise boys. You raise a girl from a young age. The girl becomes homely. She's cleaning. She's cooking. She's going to the market with her mom. She's learning negotiation skills. She's haggling. She's bargaining. She's coming back, taking care of the family. Taking. What is the boy doing? Doing all this period. He's probably watching TV or playing football outside. He eats, he drops the plates in the kitchen for the sister to wash. 
what what do we think we're doing when we're raising children like that that the boy is to be served and the girl is to is to serve and then we expect that we will not have inequality as they as they um, advance in adulthood no so it's truly these issues stem from the roots the family and that's why we're very very um intentional about what we do with the family system right we are all a product of family family not necessarily be a nuclear family uh, our upbringing you know when we engage um men who have allegedly been physically abusive a good number of us tell us when they are vulnerable and honest enough they tell us that this is what they saw growing up when the, their parents had issues father will remove his belt give the mom some lashes and whips the woman back to her right senses in fact there was a gentleman that said to me that when we, we invited him because the woman wanted us to invite him and he said to me that I'm not denying it I beat her but what is upsetting me is the fact that this woman had the effrontery hmm. to come and report me to government and he didn't know when he said the next thing that after all my father beat my mother and my mother stayed in that relationship you I just gave you two three slaps and you are coming to report reports domestic violence you know for me i just felt pity because this is what this person knows the truth is you can't give what you don't have if you've been brought up in an environment that has normalized violence that will be your conditioning if you don't access professional help so yes it's important to address that violence but more importantly is to understand the mindset why does this person have this warped mindset and see how we can if possible correct that mindset let them know that yes conflicts you will definitely have conflicts in relationships but how do you manage those conflicts can you speak about those conflicts are there coping skills you can be empowered with doing counseling and all of that um so yeah so i think patriarchy our socialization our upbringing what we're used to and then some people will say poverty. The fact that you don't have enough resources makes you more susceptible to making choices that may not be in your best interest, right? And I think it's, let me do a bit of advocacy here. It's important that females, we must have income. We must be empowered. I always say that there is nothing as um, sexy as a woman who is empowered and she's in a, she's experiencing violence there's a limit to the violence she would take at some point she would take a decision and leave because she has a bit of income or she has a bit of savings let's not forget that one of the things that domestic violence does is it sort of hinders the victims or survivors earning capacity and it is deliberate on the part of the abuser to keep their victim or their survivor in penury because they know that if this person has funds to get to a point they will say you know what i'm done to hell with you but if you are dependent financially on everything i mean where are you going to go to who is going to assist you so poverty yes um it it i think it does play a role to a certain extent in um entrenching or encouraging the perpetration thank you for that robust answer of to the question so you remember i mentioned earlier that somebody made a tweet talking about uh if you want to hurt women do not do it in lagos you can they are very serious about all of these things there and you face consequences so are there things that the lagos state government the lagos state jsba is doing that could serve as a model for other states to have this same testimony that don't do this to women in this state because this is what is going to happen to you are there things you're doing that could help other states governments so i think um everything we do you know we we this is all we do we don't have any other assignment our statutory mandate is to respond prevent 
you know, sexual and gender-based violence. So I think that's the first start. Have um, states should um, maybe you don't want to start with an agency. Obviously, we didn't we didn't we didn't start with an agency. As you know, we started with a response team, no budget, nothing, and then we evolved into this full-fledged agency. So perhaps I think just start as you are. All of us have these institutions. We need to coordinate the response. So I think the first thing is to have a response team, right? That would be in charge of coordinating response, and then build it from there propose policies, work, um, collaborate. I, I think we don't do en enough of collaboration. Um, I think some, some, and I don't think it's peculiar to government. I think it's just generally, even in the private sector, we find that people are somewhat territorial. Oh, no, 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 don't, don't usurp my powers. Don't come into my space. But we can only go, we can go as far as possible if we're working together. We must collaborate. Um, we leverage each other's strengths, working towards one common goal, which is ultimately to ensure we reduce this money to the barest minimum and ensure justice for survivors. So I think to start with response team, and then um, you must have the buy-in of the government of the day. You must, and that's where political will comes in. The government of the day must be interested. We must put our money where our heart is. And please permit me to give a shout out to my principal, my governor, Governor Songulu, for literally walking the talk. It's not just saying I'm against this. Ensuring that we are able to sustain this initiative by embedding it into, um, as, and by creating a statutory agency devoted to these issues, you know. And then just move from there, um, have a baseline. What are the issues? What are the issues that affect each institution's capacity to deliver and work on those issues. These issues are not unsurmountable or insurmountable. Trainings, um, building capacity of relevant responder agencies, working together. These are one of the ways or some of the ways that states can address this, this menace. And, and, I, I, and I do think it's happening. Granted, you may not have a lot of, um, you may not have a robust system, but there are some pockets of interventions that are being done at, the, at different states in the country and we do have states actually reach out to us that oh we'd like to come and understudy we'd like to learn we'd like you to come you know we're very receptive we, we, we don't we know that the fact that lagos is somewhat react um, 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 somewhat um, um, responsive we cannot afford to to rest on our oars and say oh We've got it all sorted out in Lagos when our neighboring states may not, you know. So it's 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 our desire for the whole country for this to be replicated across the country so that there's no haven for perpetrators. In, in your response Nigeria. earlier to the factors that contribute to the numbers of sexual violence, you mentioned that patriarchy also affects men. And I want us to have like a very chewed conversation as regards. Let's take it from the let's yeah. take it from the bright, um, gender reviews. When you said when you see a couple expecting a girl, there's this solemn look like okay, but if it's a boy, they're like ah, oh, it's a boy. Now there's also the conversation of men not wanting equality. So many men not wanting equality. We hear of cases where women and girls can't even go to school because why should you be in school? Is the guy is the boy that will go to school? You you cannot go to school. These same men, at a time in their age, they'll be wishing they had daughters because they'll say, oh, when men leave, they tend to take care of their own families. So one way or the other, it comes back to affect the family yeah. unit. I mean, nobody knows it's going to affect them, but it's just, it's, easy to, it's easier to just say these things until then, then, until it starts to affect you. And I believe that these conversations are, are way too important. You mentioned women having a source of income. How can we have a source of income if in your family you are not allowed to go to school because your brother is the one that should be in school? Actually, in Nigeria, 60% of out-of-school children are girls so in Nigeria. You, 60%. Yeah. They're girls. It's, 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 so, it's so unfair. There's so much inequality. Mm. And when you're having this conversation, especially when say there should be equality, you see young men fight so hard against it. And I'm like, why are you fighting? I'm like, is it because you do not... Are you saying that women are not entitled to basic rights? Education, Tiara, education. And when we try to make them understand, we say, okay, what if you are your daughter? Yeah. 
and they will still not understand. And I'm like, that's why you guys are always unhappy when you see that you're having a girl. Sometimes it feels like it's a crime to be female. It's so much injustice, unkindness, so much violence. Yeah. Towards women. I don't know. It's just really this come is it's just really it's so heartbreaking. Like I take it so personal. It is so unfair. I women des- women and girls deserve a life of ease. Like you go to school, you do everything and you they'll say your husband will tell you you cannot work and if you look at the religious sector it will be a uh, save your husband obey your husband so at what point can women actually get that financial security get that financial empowerment or feel awesome and being able to make decisions because it's no your husband is talking it's what your husband says it's what your husband says where does a woman's voice comes into play and this it, when it doesn't come into play it breeds violence because you're trying to fight against oppression it's like I'm talking to you and you're talking back. Then there's the blow, there's the punches, there's it kicking out of the house. It's too many. It's so it's it's so unfair, really. It, it's really, 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 really unfair. And I can't even imagine how hard it must be for you in the front line, witnessing all of these things how every do you day. Deal, like, how do you deal with because I, I can imagine the kind of emotional trauma you get done, like that get done from you. How do you deal with Sometimes it? Sometimes I talk up the internet, I'm like, you know what? Yeah. I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. It's too many. So I can't even imagine being at work and it says, he beats me, he kicks me out, he raped my child. How, how do you deal with it? Like, what? no, you as a person, how do you actually deal with it? As a person. Uh, so yeah, so us um, responders were exposed to vicarious trauma, indeed, yes, secondary trauma. So what we've what we started doing um, two years now. So we are we actually have um, in-house clinical psychologists and psychiatrists that we work with. So we also go for debriefing. <laughs> uh, when we started, people were not too receptive, but then we had to make it somewhat of like a culture. You can't give what you don't have. If you are not um, mentally balanced, if you are not happy, if you are not okay, you won't be able to give your best. And the truth is, because of the environment, because of the... My, my office is somewhat like a pressure cooker. If you come to my office between the hours of 10 and 1, in fact, you'll be overwhelmed because of the people coming in. And so we're, we're literally walking back to back. So even the people that care for others need to care for themselves right so we started that for ensuring that they are able to access support and then we've now started this um it's not it's not um it's not it hasn't become a routine but i'm working on it where the last friday of every month we dance dancing is one of the ways to actually let off some steam so we have music we have chops and they would just relax in the evening on, on Friday just to unwind and obviously build that camaraderie and that team spirit and just for a moment forget about these cases but I think over time one has to become a bit clinical you you are not supposed to get attached to these cases because you will you know when I started this work I remember I was dating my husband then um and so we're, if we go if we go out and I'll be looking I'll be looking at couples I'm like hey, this man is beating down. <laughs> You start to get paranoid, and then it dawned on me that oh oh no, this isn't good. You know, you must when you're leaving, you leave you leave work behind. And fortunately for us, we actually have um, a gender-based violence virtual response service which is accessible 24/7 through our toll-free line. And so we have um, professionals, um, social workers, criminologists, lawyers working 24/7 in shifts, right? So even if the office is not um, accessible in the night even if i'm not accessible as far as you have access to the toll free line you can you know receive support so that has somewhat reduced um the burden on us i mean us that work in the office but i think all in all um the fact that we're able to witness there's nothing as powerful as seeing a victim turn into a survivor i know that some people will say oh don't use victim I agree. But I, I truly believe there's a difference between a victim and a survivor. When you see a person metamorphosed into a survivor, where it's that survivor that now starts being a voice, that survivor that was down and out is now employing others. 
as I'm speaking to you, I'm even having chills. It's the greatest. And th- that is truly something that money cannot buy. And it really makes this work worth it. Speaking of men beating mm-hmm. their wives, you know, when we talk about domestic violence, people often watch out for scars. In agency, how do you deal with issues? How do you yes. deal with abuses that are emotional, economical, and sexual? Because the victim has come to your office, there is no evidence, and then you're calling the, the husband in. How do you handle those cases? Because what if he denies that? What if he says, she says I'm abusive, show me the evidence, but it is economical, it is sexual, and it's emotional. How do you deal with those cases? Exactly. It's, it's tough. I won't, I, won't, um, I won't distort the truth. It's actually tough. Um, so at that point in time, of course, you know, we won't be able to escalate to the police because the police will need to have evidence. So we'll deploy alternative dispute resolution in the form of mediation or mediation and negotiation. So you tell us your side of the story. He will tell us his side of the story. And then there's an unbiased, um, unbiased umpire that, you know, midwives that process. And then sometimes, you know, some survivors don't even know they have evidence. They assume evidence is only real evidence. The fact that a neighbor had settled the case before, we may be able to talk to that neighbor if that neighbor is magnanimous enough to write a statement. That's one of the ways we help the survivor to build their case. But ultimately, in a case of emotional abuse, psychological abuse, we're looking at that point in, okay, what does this survivor want? Oh, madam, I don't want this man to come near me and my children again. Or, madam, I want this man to stop the beating. Let him sign an undertaking that he will desist from it. Or, madam, please, I need a lawyer. I want to file in court for judicial separation. Or I want to file for um, for divorce. Or I want to file for a restraining order. But when we have that ADL session, it allows us to get more insights into the issues. And then, because we have trained family life engineers, in the process of the mediation, we have what is called caucusing. And that's where we engage with the parties separately. And that's an opportunity for the officer to speak truth to power, to this alleged abuser. Listen, this woman, she doesn't have any reason to command concord stories. Tell us as it is. Do you have a reason, you know? And then with, um, with, with um, professionalism, we're able to actually get the truth in most instances from the alleged abuser and then our um, joker is usually the psychosocial support provision it's free i don't know if you've tried to access um professional counseling it's expensive accessing mental health um, um services is actually quite expensive and so we provide these services at no cost to survivors so we just tell them you know make yourself available and then especially when there are children involved we tell them you need to co-parent um, you want her to pick up the child you're not going to call DSVA that please call her to call, come and open the door no and so when you both attend counselling albeit separately um, it will help you to co-parent and so the ADR sessions are quite um, instrumental in helping survivors also onboarding you know for some survivors the opportunity to even speak is part of their healing process because they have been so um, their, their, their emotions have and their um, self-esteem has been so broken to the point that they've lost their voice. But the ADR session allows them to find their voice as well. So they're able to speak and talk about all these issues they've been internalizing for years. And so that's also part of the healing process. And then as I said, we're survivor-centered. We do what's the survivor. What do you want? What do you want to achieve? from this process thank you it's been a very refreshing conversation talking to you because you're you're on the field you're working with these people you're working with professionals you're basically like the middle person because you're coordinating in the sense of you're bringing survivors you're bringing professionals you're bringing everybody together to do this so it's been refreshing to have this conversation with you and in conclusion we we'll, would we'll like to ask so what do you what advice what words of advice do you have for people who are currently in abusive situations what what are you going to leave like what words would you leave them with before we end this conversation thank you 
I would say that um, every domestic violence case is a potential murder case. It can be the last push, the last shot, the last kick, the last slap. Please, don't wait until it's too late. Don't be afraid of what will people say. That phrase has kept people in, in bondage. And the truth is, irrespective of what you do, people would say. If you speak out, people will say. If you stay quiet, people will say. So do you. And be alive. And be whole. And be complete. And one of the ways you can achieve that is by breaking the culture of silence. Wow, that was truly eye-opening. Titsilola, thank you so much for taking your time to share all of these experiences with us. It's been so insightful. Thank you so much. And thank you for the work you're doing out there. Oh, yes. <laughs> I also hear so many things for the first time because you're yes. in the field. We hear these things from friends, family, strangers, but even if, if we say everybody was lying, you can't be lying. You know, we need to get stories from people that are put that are doing the work, the real work to save victims to, to, to <laughs> it's hard it's hard really. it's really hard it's really hard thank you for your dedication to the work you're doing because it's showing and people can see people out there when people are talking they know that oh just reach out to lola rv don't worry you are fine like it's just what people say like i've seen tweets because i'm very i'm very active on twitter so i see tweets of people talking about how the work in lagos is being done like fine there's an agency but the fact that you are in charge is also one of the reasons why because you have you you said you were born to serve from the beginning of this conversation so it shows in the work you're doing that you have a burden for the people you have a burden to to empower people Thank you for the work you're doing at Lego DSB. And to our listeners, we hope that this episode has provided you with a better understanding of the issues surrounding sexual and gender-based violence in Nigeria. And we hope that it has also inspired change. Absolutely. Let's all work together to foster a inclusive and equitable society. And don't forget to listen to our previous episodes and stay empowered. Again, thank you. Bye. Bye, everybody.